observance day, the new moon, renewing our vows, the disciplinary vows that we have, having confessed any offenses, and this is like a new beginning, starting anew. This idea of confession of offenses, uh, even if it's just a kind of uh, almost a, a general confession, psychologically it's like saying, okay, that's over with, now start anew. Completely a sense of a renewal, a new beginning. Because of our clinging minds, we tend to hang on to things. And and uh, if we don't uh, kind of purify that and, and come to terms with with our faults and let go of them, then we, we tend to never resolve any real issues. We just, uh, we more or less can carry things around and uh, in, in our minds for a lifetime, never resolve any, any real problems or fears and doubts. So when we reflect that the past is the past, it's a memory. And we've, as a, as a member of the Sangha, we've, we've uh, done all that is proper and right in regards to our discipline and convention, so that now say, the Sangha is, uh, this vigil this evening is, uh, is a chance to, to the sense of, of this purity. We've all made this determination, we've all confessed our offenses, and this evening uh, all over the world there are a lot of peace vigils taking place. I think in Trafalgar Square and Downing Street and St. Paul's Cathedral and Coventry Cathedral and, and probably all over the United States and other places, uh, peace vigils. Because at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning is uh, the deadline. It's uh, London time for the uh, Gulf crisis. The Gulf War can begin any time after 5 a.m. So it all coincides on our observance night, full uh, new moon and the dark no moon and the all night sitting. Uh, the purification, confession, the, the uh, renewal of our vows, our determination to live within the rest, uh, restraint of our disciplines. contemplate like peace and I don't know if many people really want peace I think like many things it's a it's a sentimental 
idea that sounds nice. But if you take peace to to um, its natural state of uh, where there's true peace, that means you have to let go of all selfishness. And there are not many people willing to do that. The self-sacrifice or the sacrifice means to make sacred rather than a profaned corrupted self. We're making it sacred, our presence, our bodies, our minds. We're sanctifying these, not in, in a personal way, because if it comes from a sense from the ego, then it is corruption again. But through relinquishment, through letting go, through non-attachment. This is the way of the spiritual realization of no self. You sacrifice what you most love and are attached to and treasure. You don't sacrifice the something you don't value. There's no sacrifice. Sacrifice last week's loaf of bread or You know, some people want to make sacrifices to Dhammavati, so they give us old rotting carpets and things. Things they don't want. We have a whole storeroom of, of sacrifices. But, and so sacrifice is a word that often, like when we say self-sacrifice, that can even kind of have a pejorative meaning. Uh, it, like you're, you're giving up something you really like, which is, uh, uh, or to, you have to give up yourself as a kind of duty, onerous duty. Not the word itself, it comes as the same root as sacred, making sacred. So when they sacrifice things to the gods and they say animal sacrifices or the the pharaohs of Egypt originally were sacrificial, were to be sacrifices. They they were actually uh, sacrificed to the gods, the, the original kings of Egypt, the pharaohs. They were brought up in a very special way uh, and trained in order to be sacrificed. And then I guess some of the more wily ones figured out maybe they could substitute other things. So they did. Maybe the slave, let the slave be sacrificed for me. But the original idea, in, in, say in religious uh, myth and symbol, is the you, like Jesus Christ in Christianity is the sacrifice, isn't it? Jesus sacrificed his only son. That which is say, what is most loved and treasured. So in our life, say, it's a, we can regard our life as a sacrifice, not in a pejorative or in a, in a kind of a silly way, but 
as a reflection of we're giving up all our, 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 all that we hold dear, all our attachments, all that, our identities, all that we, we treasure about ourselves and the world. We're letting go of that. We're relinquishing, sacrificing, making all of that the, our sense of a personality, our self-importance, our desires, our interests, our, not just the bad things, not just our bad tempers and greedy tendencies, but we're sacrificing, making sacred, we're relinquishing even the most treasured things, our attachments to parents and to friends and to uh, independence and and uh, individual rights and and ability to do what you want whenever you want to and uh, ownership and power over money and wealth. All this is is relinquished in the Sangha, the Samana Sangha. So the Buddha, when he, when he established his tradition, teaching, it was, it's, it's something that, it's not based on sacrificing of animals or holy wars or anything like this. And having the, the holy war of Saddam Hussein is, is rousing all the Iraqis in these kind of uh, bombastic speeches, which he is uh, you know, proclaiming a holy war against the forces of evil. And to a Buddhist, that is, uh, that is the ultimate sila Bhattabharamata, clinging to rites and rituals, superstition, where the first precept that we have is the Banadibhata, isn't it? To refrain from intentionally taking the lives of other beings. That's uh, of, of the very first moral precept of a Buddhist. So there's no such possibility as a holy war. And the Buddhist, the Sangha is is the Buddha's way of getting out of all those kind of involvements. He recognized that, that when you're dealing with boundaries and property and people and different groups and kingdoms and nations and all that, you're inevitably going to be involved with wars and conflicts on that level. You have to, there's a, the, but there's not a holy war in Buddhism. There's never been any war that has been uh, that can be considered holy or righteous war. And the way out of war was to uh, say, if you want to get out of that whole realm, then he, he created the, the Samana Sangha, Bhikshu Bhikshuni Sangha, so that that people could actually, if they wanted to get out of that those kind of binds, those obligations, those conventions, that there was a way out. So that, so that our life is based on this ahimsa, generosity, 
dana, ahimsa, harmlessness. The the bhikkhu training is all about making yourself quite harmless, isn't it? Men, we we have a very aggressive tendencies. We like to fight and wrestle and compete and and uh, prove our strength and skill and we have, uh, male energy is a very aggressive one. And so the bhikkhu training is 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 aimed at taking away that aggressiveness. So we're not allowed to carry weapons or threaten people with our fists or or curse or threaten people with language or to even walk or put ourselves in a in a posture or an attitude that conveys aggression and will frighten somebody else. We're not to tease or to annoy or to frighten or intentionally scare anyone. We're forbidden to say boo with the intention to scare somebody. Instead of a steel helmet and and leather boots and and a whip and uh, and a sword and a machine gun. We have to give all those things up. Shaven head and these funny robes and then the ideal, say in a warmer climate, is bare feet. So that there's no, you're kind of leaving yourself open to be, you know, you have no protection uh, as a warrior, as a male warrior. You're, You're just quite vulnerable to attack. Wearing the color yellow. Colored of cowards, isn't it? <laughs> Yellowish, the yellow streak down the back and things like this. Learning to, to, to just say with an alms ball, walk through a, through a village or town, with uh, in in a in a respectful and and dignified way, but not in conveying any aggressive male tendencies. Not to kind of stride and throw your arms about and stick out your chest and flex your muscles. You put on these robes and everything's covered and and then you walk in, you know, very mindfully and subdued in a way that is is uh, not non-threatening to anyone. The presence of a proper bhikkhu it isn't is not is a non-threatening presence. So psychologically, the Buddha had it all figured out quite well. Uh, say, for, like with the bhikkhunis also. So that the the nuns were not were not uh, say acting in ways to say that 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 worldly women act, such as wearing uh, clothes and makeup and jewelry and things that to attract and and uh, tempt. Men. 
not to walk or to move in ways, in, in any intentional way, to, to arouse uh, sexual interests by the men. So the presence of nuns is, is non-threatening, non, not an attempt to, to, uh, to, be a, to be that in the society which is, is uh, trying to attract attention in, in that way as a, to a, to, as a woman, from a woman to a man. So in, in this way, we're sacrificing these, because these are, these are quite uh, nice things to be able to do, actually. You know, the thrill of having a, uh, a male body and the sense of strength and vigor that, that, that is one of the great pleasures of, of masculinity, having a powerful body, having strength, and asserting yourself in kind of these kind of aggressive states are quite thrilling, actually. At least I found them so. It wasn't uh, something that uh, I didn't, couldn't enjoy, but it was certainly a way to, uh, that was not very uh, skillful and not, uh, in the end, would just create more misery and suffering. I'm sure for women it must be very thrilling to to dress up in beautiful gowns and have your hair done and to be able to walk in a way and have every uh, men look at you and admire you and want you. It must be that was certainly thrilling experiences possible, but we sacrifice those those that 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 type of activity. So we find ourselves in these very drab uh, robes, shaven head. So the quality of a samana is this way. It's, it's, there's the, the refuge in Sangha means that we we're abiding in this in this state of practicing the Dhamma and, and uh, realization of truth and doing of good, refraining from doing of evil. And uh, feminine, masculine uh, energies are reflected upon and recognized but no longer identified with, neither through indulging in them or suppressing them because our refuge is in Buddha and Dhamma and Sangha, in wisdom and truth and virtuous conduct. And all the rights, uh, uh, individual rights and, and special privileges of class or whatever, position, all these things are relinquished, let go of. Uh, these the worldly dhammas are what they are. Some are very good, and some are not good at all. There's uh, the world is is mixture of all kinds of things. 
things change. And so then the, uh, when one is involved with worldly things, uh, then one is, uh, gets lost in, in deluded by the, the, the way that one perceives the world. This is what we're facing now in the, in the Gulf crisis. Just such a, such incredible blindness and uh, inability to, to agree on how to be decent human beings. What is right? It's, it's so full of, of all kinds of righteous energies and prejudices and blame and and. Uh, worst kind of uh, worst possible kind of human uh, difficulties are present at this time manifesting in, into, onto this planet Saddam Hussein says he's, you know, the American troops will be swimming in their own blood really grim ghastly thing to say isn't it with relish idea of these these American uh, soldiers swimming in their own blood and, and you kill the all the forces of evil which is everyone that's not an Arab and of course Saddam Hussein has managed to kill a lot of Arabs too but he doesn't never says this he talks about all the Muslims he's killed he's killed more Muslims than than non-Muslims I'm sure record in Iraq is, is amazing as far as the butcher of Baghdad but um, it's strange how the human mind works isn't it that it it can forget all that uh, and when you point to something else they forget that he was a butcher of Baghdad responsible for the slaughter and murder of thousands upon thousands of people of his own people um, but he can rouse everybody to to hate the Americans And I'm sure the Americans haven't been anywhere near a problem or a menace to Iraq as uh, as he has himself. But Hitler did the same for Germany, and and these various tyrants have a certain kind of charismatic quality to to mesmerize people and to totally delude them. Because if you're not aware of how things are, you you are. You can easily be life's victim, be caught up in the madness and delusion of the people around you. As a Buddhist taking the first precept, Banadibata, if, if you were in Iraq now and they said, you have to go into the military and uh, fight the evil forces, the Americans, you would, you would have to say, well, I'm sorry. But I've just taken the Manadibhata precepts. If you were a good Buddhist, well, you probably you might be killed for it. But it's still better to be killed than kill somebody else, isn't it? I'd rather be killed than kill somebody else. We're all going to die anyway. It doesn't matter when, really. Now or 50 years from now, you're going to die anyway. But what's frightening in 
what what frightens me is not death but evil acting and doing evil things that I really dread I, death I'm quite quite prepared for whenever it comes that's fine so I'm not I would I'd rather die than kill somebody intentionally kill somebody But how many people can really say that, can re um, feel that, that they, they could actually, would rather die than kill another human being? Ideally, they might like to, but, but if you don't know how your mind works, and if you don't understand what's really important, and if you don't have any refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, then we can be made into kind of quivering masses, cowardly messes by uh, just uh, intimidating us, threatening our lives, so that we, we do anything to save our lives, do any kind of corrupt act or dreadful act in order to save our skin. Hum human cowardice and human degeneracy is notorious, isn't it? This is where, in, in, in refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, you say you can, if you, if you really develop that refuge with wisdom, then you have a, a confidence to deal with life in which you're not going to prostitute yourself or you're not going to, to be taken in by the foolish trends or opportunities. So that we would we would are keeping the first precept, Bhanadibhata is more important than than uh, say even if we then say our own life. Somebody's going to kill us. If we don't keep it then let them. But we we will we will not participate in any kind of murder, killing, intentional killing of other human beings. As seminars, we carry that even to the point of other creatures. We can't kill, intentionally kill other, other uh, conscious beings. So this is a uh, this is a, a, a very honorable way to live, isn't it? When you, when you think that we choose to, to take this precept, choose to live in this way, choose to make ourselves non-aggressive, non-violent beings, practicing the Dhamma, living in this, in this restrained, mindful way shows the, the possibilities for humanity. If, if, if human beings were merely conditioned creatures and didn't have any choices, but were just victims of fate and conditioning, then, then I don't know that any of us would be here now, would we? We would be doing what we were programmed to do. We wouldn't have any spiritual aspirations. Uh, we would not have any words for spiritual aspirations. We wouldn't be able to conceive of words like enlightenment or uh, immortality or uh, any of these 
uh, words that convey ultimate reality. If we were merely uh, creatures of habit, uh, conditioned by life, then there would be no need to have words like God or Buddha or anything like that. would be incapable of conceiving such concepts. But because we can conceive, we can, we, there's something in it, that intuitive sense, the sense behind the sense, that knows, intuits, an ultimate reality. The thinking mind can, can doubt it and think, I don't, if you can't see it, I don't think, I think it's just you're making it up in your head, or the doubting mind can can go on on that level, can't it? Because we're also con- where our minds are conditioned to doubt all that hocus pocus and mysticism and and uh, religious uh, metaphysical speculations and things that aren't real or true, where the hard facts. Uh, or, you know, or the earth, fire, water, and air elements. Reality is what you can see and hear with your senses. God or, or ultimate reality or deathless immortality, unborn, uncreated, or just, or just uh, maybe intellectual playthings. Just people making up words in their minds and they have no, there's no ground, no, no possibility for uh, that because it's, it, you can't prove it empirically. You can only know it insightfully. And so that's the, the reason, the whole reason for our practice, isn't it? To, for that realization that intuitive realization where the mind is liberated from the programmed, conditioned realm that we are, that is so, uh, that so strongly influences our mind. That's where we need to know that for what it is, to really examine it. And the, and the examination isn't uh, or a judgmental, uh, the judgment of its quality, its quality or quantity, but in its characteristic of impermanence. This, this ongoing uh, reflection on uh, of anicca. All that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. That gives us perspective. If you take the investigation of anicca to into everything, every con- possible condition, whether subtle or coarse, whatever, then that gives you perspective on the condition realm that you you cannot possibly have if you if you're getting yourself involved with the qualities and quantities, the attractions and repulsive tended uh, aspects of the condition realm. We, then we tend to merely react and get lost in emotional reactions and mental proliferations around the qualities and quantities of the conditioned realm. So we're taking the characteristic 
characteristic common to all conditions, whether it's a universal system or it's a thought moment or just a, a feeling, a vague feeling that one is having. No matter if it's if it's vague and and trivial and uh, very ephemeral, or if it is very solid, like a big rock or mountain. We reflect on the, uh, we, we contemplate a Nietzsche with the condition, with uh, any condition. So what does a, what does Mount Everest have in common with a, uh, with uh, the pain in your knee? that they're a Nietzsche. When you have perspective, that means that you, 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 you can look at something uh, in, and many things without becoming uh, uh, absorbed into one aspect or one particular quality. You can see how things relate when you have perspective, then you can, you 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 have a sense of proportion. You can, you the realization of the, of cessation of niroda of nibbana of desirelessness, the realization of greedlessness, non greed, non hatred, non delusion. This is like the realization of the space in this room, isn't it? You don't, uh, the space in this room, you have to realize it because it's already here. Maybe you don't notice it, so you don't realize the space. But when you realize the space in this room, you, you have perspective on all the things in the room. You can see how the things relate to each other they're in perspective. They're, they're, you, you, you're not just going from one thing to another. So space, in order, it's <clears throat> space you, because it's here and now, it's not, and it's wherever you go, isn't it? In your room, in, in, the, in uh, the, the bathroom, in the toilet, in dining hall, wherever there's space out on the field. The conditions change. Conditions come and go, and they can be pleasant and unpleasant, beautiful and ugly, or whatever. But the the space is forever. Uh, what we refer, what we can gain perspective from. But we wouldn't notice the space really until we notice the conditions and how they relate to space. So. So that we 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 have both the conditions, or the, they say the form and the space, the relationship of a form in space, that gives you perspective. So we're not attaching to space and thinking that we have to get rid of all the forms. Nor are we just blinded by the forms and lost going from one form to another. 
say, just on the level of vision, we experiment with space. Apply that same pattern to your to to your mind, where there is form and when when there is self and when there is no self. So no self is a realization. Anatta is a realization. It's because it's there all the time. It's, it's, there's never a moment where there isn't anatta. But one is so programmed, so caught up into reacting to, to all the views, attachments, obsessions, identities with self, with the body, with the feelings, with the memories and thoughts. Desire is not the metaphysical absolute, is it? Desire comes and goes. So when you when you recognize desire's desire, then you realize its absence also. You realize viraga or desirelessness. Viraga, niroda, nibbana. These are when when you get the admonition after the Upasambhada, these three words, you have ordained, you've taken the Upasambhada in order to realize Niroda, Viraga, and Nibbana. It's a realization. It's just a realization is being able to know what is here and now as is. It's, it's ultimately real, ultimate, ultimate reality, which is we're never separated from, but which we don't notice. We're not, we're not, we haven't realized it because we have become so addicted to the conditioned realm, to birth and death, to selfish views, to opinions, to memory, to... Uh, attitudes and fears and desires, attachments of all kinds. So when we're attached, when we're grasping the five khandhas, then that's samsara. We're caught in the realm of birth and death. When there's non-attachment, that's nibbana. Nibbana is the realization of non-attachment. Niroda is the realization of cessation. A condition ceases. What arises ceases. And Niroda is the realization of the cessation. And Viraga is the realization of desirelessness. Raga is, is greed or desire. And and virag is the realization of desirelessness, non-greed. Well, you can see the Gulf War is all about the conditioned realm, and there's no realizations of Nibbana or Viraga Niroda. I'm sure everybody that's involved in that war has hasn't a clue. They think if they were here listening, they wouldn't be able to understand a word. It's all silly talk of no importance. Let's talk about, um, you know, the 
how to use our cruise missiles on the Iraqis or how to win a war or how to seek revenge and set that man straight or how to all the the problems of the Palestinians and the Israelis and the rich and the poor and these worldly conditions are so fraught with importance the qualities are uh, can be can arouse our feelings. Sometimes we don't want to know if you're if you're a, a rich Westerner who's making lots of money and and uh, you don't. There's a lot of things you just don't want to know, is there? Aren't there? There's just so many things one would rather not be reminded of, like third world poverty and starvation and famine in Africa and exploitation of third world countries by the uh, affluent ones and these things you don't want to hear and you don't want to know. You're more interested in the stock market, in the, in the news in regards to um, buying and selling stocks and making lots more money. And this Kuwait thing can be just an un a thorn in your side because it's getting in your way. You don't, you don't want to have to be bothered with with these things. You want because it's interfering with your income or your profit-making abilities. Or other people are very concerned on, about every possible issue, about every problem that arises, anguished about everything that goes wrong, about the way the world is. Those are the two extremes. Just uh, those that are just so selfish, they they uh, they only think of their own immediate privileges and profits and pleasures. Or the other person, so idealistic that they they can't uh, they don't have any perspective on the world at all. They're just totally kind of caught in seeing what's wrong with it and the unfairnesses and injustices and, and bad things that go on in the world. So your mind is endlessly filled with, with the causes and, and obsessions and, and uh, the anguish that comes from, from thinking about all the bad things that, that, that exist in the world at this time. One, the, the, the yuppie businessman that doesn't care about the whales or the dolphins or third world poverty or anything like that because in, in, he's just thinking of his own immediate pleasures and he realizes that these things go on and there's nothing, he doesn't feel he can do much about them and doesn't want to even know if there is anything that one can do. But we can see in our own experience of life here at Amravati, for example, how much uh, suffering there is even when there's no third world poverty or no indifference to, uh, to the wrongs uh, of the world or of the situation, but where we, we just suffer because of our pride and egos and views and opinions in the in in uh, just the problems of being alive as a separate 
individual being. And some of you really look miserable sometimes. You look more miserable than, than some of those Sudanese people who are starving to death. Some of you look more miserable than, than they do on your faces. It's not because you're, you're because of starvation or any any tyranny, but because of your own way of thinking about yourself in the world. You know, you've created uh, a, a world to live in that is miserable, even in a situation that is 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 not miserable. When you think about Amravati, what, where is the misery here? What is there to be miserable about? Where, where, where can you find a community of people who are so determined to keep the first? Where can you find a place where, where there is a determination to, to not speak, make sexual demands on each other between men and women? Two beings, where, are we, where, where, where in the world is that possible? Most of my experience of life before becoming a monk was this endless kind of having to deal with that, with the sexual drive, one's own sexual drive, and the sexual interests of others, and the kind of endless curiosities and prurient tendencies of a. Of, uh, of the gamma realm. When you live on the, say, on alms and the donations and the, and the whole, uh, uh, say, goodness of our life, the dedication, the, the, the aspiration, the opportunity, uh, and yet, in spite of all that, some of you can create a whole realm to be utterly miserable in, in because you don't like this person or you, you don't think you want to be a monk or not anymore or you, you can't make a decision or you, you feel jealous of somebody or you feel you're not appreciated enough or, you're, or <coughs> things aren't exactly fair enough. It's not, it's not perfect. And still, even in a community like Amravati, it isn't always fair here. We can't be absolutely and utterly, positively fair all the time, and uh, because that's just not the way life is. We learn from fairness and unfairness. We try to be fair, our intentions are to be fair, but sometimes life just doesn't allow fairness to be an experience in every moment of our lives. Sometimes uh, we, we can't get the attention, or maybe people don't notice, or maybe we're not appreciated enough. Maybe it's true, maybe you're not fully appreciated. Maybe the community doesn't truly and fully appreciate you yet. As, mu as much as they should. But that's all right, too, because it, we learn from not being appreciated. 
doesn't matter, it's not the issue of whether somebody appreciates me or not. Some people are more popular than others. What is that? Why do some people, why are some monks and nuns more, people like them better than others? That's not fair, is it? They sh everybody should like each other equally. In the, in the, we, everybody, there shouldn't be any kind of one monk being more appreciated or liked more than any other monk as an ideal. But the world is not like that. People are, some people have qualities that many other people like or attracted to and others don't. That's just the way it is. That's not, that's, we can feel very upset or angry or offended by the fact that maybe somebody junior to, to me, everybody likes better than they do me. That's not fair, is it? They should like me the best because I'm the senior. Everybody should like me the best because I've been here the longest. <laughs> and then, then those junior monks, they can, it's all right for people to like them as long as they don't like them better than they like me. <laughs> and that's a miserable mental state, isn't it? To, to be jealous and resentful and feeling offended or hurt because we, we feel we're not, we're not uh, appreciated or liked enough or that somebody else who hasn't maybe done as much or doesn't give as much or what, as we think we do is, is even is given all the, the uh, accolades. But for our life as a reflection and for contemplation, those are very good things to learn from. We, we, we use the unfairnesses, injustices, uh, the offenses, the, the trials and tribulations of life for contemplating Dhamma. That's, that's, what's, that's what's important. And there's nothing to stop you from doing that here. You know, that's encouraged to use uh, everything for contemplation of Dhamma. Sometimes in the, these affluent countries, isn't it, people are incredibly wretched and miserable. Uh, and, and yet we can, we can feel so uh, upset by the injustice, by the, by, you know, feel, get really kind of upset by the injustices in the third world of poverty and, and oppression. And yet, in our own lives, we live, we, we are oppressing ourselves. <coughs> and remember that, that sometimes poverty is not really, I mean, is, is more bearable than wrong thinking. <laughs> we, you find the highest suicide rates not in poverty-stricken countries, but in affluent countries. 
is wrong thinking, thinking in the wrong way that is true misery. Now I'm not supporting poverty as um, thinking that that uh, we we shouldn't you know be concerned. But I'm pointing out the fact that that just by getting rid of poverty isn't the answer either. That just just by thinking that that uh, once all these worldly problems are solved, then everything's going. There's the assumption that everything's going to be all right. But the worldly problems are still. We're always going to have worldly problems. That's just part of this this realm of of uh, birth and death. It's like this. So we learn how to learn and solve problems learn from them, which gives us the ability to to not create more problems out of ignorance <coughs> anyway. Sometimes problems just create themselves due to circumstances. But we, we learn how not to create problems out of ignorance, out of our own fears and desires. And we can begin to, when we, when we realize that, then we the fear and of of being left alone or being without or being poor goes away, and uh, then we're quite willing to share. Love to share, to give, to be generous uh, with others. Some of those miserable people I've never met in my life in these affluent countries. So it's, it's as far as human suffering goes, uh, physical poverty isn't necessarily the sign of human misery, is it? It's really the wrong thinking. I'd rather be a, a peasant in the Sudan, starving to death in Saddam Hussein right now. Because <laughs> one can bear up with starvation and, and these kind of things if a, we have a tremendous enduring abilities. Human beings are survivors and we can endure all kinds of things. But we have to, if we have to endure. We're very resilient kind of beings. So as far as as the physical misery and illness and all that goes, don't worry about it. That we can endure, we can bear it. If if the worst happens, we have a very we have the ability to endure and be patient. And so then we, when we, when we truly appreciate that, then we realize there's nothing to fear. Because we, whatever happens, be physical sickness or loss of loved ones or uh, contamination, pollution, diseases, all these things, if, if this happens to us, we, we still can reflect, we can still learn from it. We can still bear it and endure it. But some of you can't even endure very much of your own minds here at Amaravati. Mm -hmm. You're all funny, all 
carried away with your moods and feelings and trivial uh, sense of being hurt or upset or this or that. You can't, you can't endure that. The, the foolishness we create out of ignorance is unbearable. It is unendurable. Ignorance is, is unendurable. We can't stand it. Horrible to be ignorant, not know the Four Noble Truths in their three aspects and twelve insights. Then our life is just unbearable experience. We can bear anything but ourselves, the ego and the conceit and the pride. That is unbearable. So because of that, then we we, the, we realize that we don't have to bear it. We can just let it go, not create any more egos. Because why create suffering? Why make ourselves miserable? If you don't have to. If, there's, if it's just through not understanding things properly, then understand things properly. Put forth that energy, that effort to look into Dhamma and see things in the right way. And then you can bear whatever uh, on the physical side and, and the, the changes, uh, the vicissitudes of our lives. We can bear anything that happens, good, bad, indifferent, exciting or boring, peace or war. All of that is bearable in itself. So tonight, uh, with the all night, uh, with the vigil, we can sit here together and practice and offer the blessings of our practice for, as a offering to the welfare of all beings and that, that the, some kind of good sense and uh, wisdom might come before any kind of dreadful uh, war begins. We'd like, isn't it? Some people could just awaken just a little bit, see just a little bit how to, how to deal with this particular issue. Just a little bit of it, not asking for total enlightenment, just uh, a measure, a small measure of wisdom would help enormously at this time. So in our own practice this evening, let's try to use the wisdom in our practice. Not, not just sit here like, uh, just uh, as a kind of in a dull state and, and going through the motions, but contemplating Dhamma, reflecting, developing, cultivating the way. And this, this evening, as they on on this uh, particular night, say we, we is our all-night sitting, so it gives us that, that even more of an impetus, an opportunity to have a peace vigil this evening for the welfare of planet Earth. That what we can offer at this time. Uh, hopefully, that will. Uh, have a good effect on whatever happens.
So I offer this for your reflection.